0: Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday, another Anything Goes Friday, the day when any subject is fair game. Welcome to the show. Today I'm going to be talking all about the I-5 Strangler, Roger Kibby. But before we begin, I would like to remind you guys that you can download the audio of this program as a pure podcast using Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. If you would like to download the video version of the show. You can use YouTube Premium, but that you have to pay for. Launchpad, one is free. You can download the audio, take it on the go, anywhere and anyhow. Link is in the description box. And I am also the host of Astro Psych 400. I did a 12-part video series on astrology, one for each zodiac sign, and that's just it. Talking about the zodiac killer every Monday got me curious about astrology and star signs, so I did a video series on that on YouTube under the channel name Astro Psych 400. And another great way to support the show, in addition to just listening, is to visit the Amazon page that is in the description box. Look at a copy of the book, Killer on a White Horse, by me, Ned DeHaan. It's a murder mystery, novel, fiction. But feel free to have a look. You can even get one of those free sample things from Amazon.com. The link to that is, of course, in the description box. A lot of good things in the description box, including the Teespring page. There's some other merchandise there. And remember, being weird is not a crime. Today I wanted to, to talk about the I-5 Strangler because I learned about this set of murders in somewhat of a roundabout way. Several months ago I did an episode on the Sacramento Freeway murders which occurred in 1986. It was a double murder that could possibly be connected to the Zodiac Killer. And as I was going through the sources for that one, I found that numerous, numerous places we're just popping up all of these results about the I-5 Strangler, Roger Kibby, and I knew that I had to learn more at some point, and I finally just sat down and decided to take in as much of the info as I could. So, as we'll see very early on, Roger Kibby, the I-5 Strangler, is going to have some very, very regular serial killer hallmarks, like some very typical and unexpected behavior of a serial killer, And there's going to be a lot of info in this story that is challenging, that is different, that makes me very suspicious. It's abnormal behavior for a serial killer. I would like to point out something, though. If you go over to his page on Murderpedia, he's referred to as the I-5 killer. And there are at least two other people that are referred to as the I-5 killer in the true crime world. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Randall Woodfield. But I think that he's definitely more well-known as the I-5 Strangler. And Roger Kibbe was born in 1941. He had a childhood that was somewhat alienated. Almost all the sources that talk about his upbringing say one very important thing. He had an abusive and domineering mother who would beat him. Roger Kibbe was also someone who was alienated from the other kids growing up. They would make fun of him because he had a stutter. And instantly, I'm reminded of the serial killer Robert Christian Hansen, the butcher baker who operated in Anchorage, Alaska. Very similar story. This feeling of alienation and hopelessness is something that really drives a lot of people to hide their devious tendencies and their destructive behavior because they resent, well, the makings of society. It's like that old proverb, The child who is not loved by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. And you can see that with serial killers. They actually try to put that into motion. They create this mindset of, okay, well, society was bad to me, so I'm going to be even worse to the other people in society, but I need to do it in a way in which I won't get caught, because then they will stop my destructive tendencies and they will stop me from expressing myself in destructive ways. That becomes a foundation of serial killer behavior. But here is something about Roger Kibbe that is quite different than a lot of other serial killers. He had an abusive mother that beat him severely growing up. He married a woman named Harriet, and she turned out to be a domineering and controlling and verbally abusive woman. I mean, I was reading this one source that even said something to the effect of she would just get angry at him over everything, and other people would describe it as he would just kind of sit back and roll with the punches, more or less, on the surface. He would appear that way, but in all reality, he was a serial killer. Like his name, the I-5 Strangler primarily went for strangulation as his method of execution, and he did it in a couple different ways. In at least one case, he used the victim's own sweater to strangle her, but also he uh, would use something that... I'll just call it paracord, a type of nylon cord that is used in parachutes. Because Roger Kibby had the hobby of skydiving, he was actually a passionate skydiver. And there's something else that you don't hear too frequently about that serial killers just have a, a very passionate um, interest in a recreational hobby. Maybe, maybe in certain cases, you know, the Golden State Killer was very passionate about motor- motorcycles. Now, as we go through this, I would like to cite some sources that I thought were very valuable to this discussion. There's an article on Oxygen.com by Benjamin H. Smith, and then there's a website that I had never heard of before called RobertKellerAuthor.com, who has a very extensive piece on Roger Kibbe, the I-5 Strangler, and he even advertises giving away true crime books for free one more time, RobertKellerAuthor.com. And there is an episode of The Murder Squad, hosted by Paul Jensen Billy Holes. Did I really say that? Billy Holes and Paul Jensen. Paul Holes and Billy Jensen. Jensen and Holes, yes, yes, okay. Now, a little bit of a crossed wire in the brain. And yes, if you go over to the website run by Jensen and Holes, Billy Jensen and Paul Holes, that is, I highly recommend their page on this because they did some very strong, um, well, breaking down the case, victim by victim, and paying tribute to um, the victims who were murdered by the I-5 Strangler. The uh, first one was Llewellyn Burley in 1977, then there was Laura Hedick in 1986, Barbara Ann Scott also in 1986, and then the next set of victims included Stephanie Brown and Charmaine Sabra, both in 86, and then Catherine Kelly Canones and Darcy Frackenpole. Darcy Frackenpull was the youngest victim. She was murdered in 1987. First, can I just say a big rest in peace to all of these women. They did not deserve to be murdered by the I-5 Strangler. There are seven confirmed victims that have been murdered by Roger Kibby, And as I said, he would primarily use the method of strangulation. But there is, you might have noticed, a very important detail. The first victim was Llewellyn Burley who was murdered in 1977. And I think even if you go over to the Wikipedia page, it says that she went to a job interview and she never returned. Well, that is only a small fraction of the story. It, the job interview was actually a hoax that was set up by Roger Kibby. He posted a fake ad. And not only that, she actually went to the first interview, and Roger Kibby actually went... Along and conducted an entirely fake job interview. First, she shows up and he says, "Oh yeah, by the way, my office is under construction, so we're just going to do the interview in my van." And she goes along with it. And he did an entirely fake job interview. Uh, Roger Kibby worked in the furniture business. By the way, he was this was um completely completely unrelated to his company, and. Then she came back for the second interview, which she thought was, well, the first one was real. We actually had a preliminary meeting in his van. So then she came back for the second one, and she was never seen again. And there's some very important notes about the murder of Llewellyn Burley that I will share later on. But with the other victims, you may have noticed that they have a time period resurfacing in 1986 and then going on to 1987 with the murder of Darcy Frackenpole. Darcy Frackenpole was a runaway from Seattle who turned to prostitution, and she was murdered by Roger Kibby. And then, because they caught on to his activities, they even assembled an I-5 Strangler task force, and they could tell that somebody's abducting women off of, the, off of Interstate 5 in California, and they were able to pin the murder of Darcy Frackenpole on him. And I believe I was reading this on um, that website about the I-5. Uh, yeah, Robert Keller, I believe, was the one who posted this. When he said that even though Roger Kibby went through an enormous amount of effort to cover his tracks, he couldn't do everything. And at first the authorities were like, Hey, we found the same type of paracord that was used in one of the murders. And then Roger Kibby has this paracord. And then a judge just dismissed it and was like, big deal. It's the same type of cord. Lots of people could have purchased that. And in all seriousness, I do um, agree that the judge is kind of just saying this is something that's widely sold. It's not exclusive to him. But in the murder of Darcy Frackenpole, the um, perpetrator, Roger Kibbe, actually left behind one of his hairs on her body. I believe it was actually a hair from his leg, a leg hair. And then they were able to determined that he murdered her, so he's convicted in 1991 for the murder of Darcy Frackenpole. He's in jail for 20 years. This is also something very different. He's already serving a life sentence and eligible for parole after, I believe, 16 years, but life with parole. But then, new discoveries were made, new links were established using DNA testing as well as forensic science in general, and the other six victims of the I-5 Strangler were connected to him in the later part of the first decade in the new millennium, 2008, 9, 10, and 11. And then Roger Kibby would ultimately go on to confessing to six more murders, bringing the body count to seven. But to look at these uh, crimes in chronological order, and there's, a, as I said, there's a very good uh, timeline arranged on the themurdersquad.com. You can see that he's committed the first crime in 1977, then, for nearly ten years, no activity. Nearly ten years, no activity? I don't believe that. The authorities also don't believe that, because that is something that is just beyond belief when it comes to a sexually motivated serial killer. Roger Kibby not only abducted the victims, not only murdered them, not only strangled them, but he also sexually assaulted them. And he would do something that is a little bit unique. He almost had a signature of going about it. Not only would he bind their hands with that paracord or some other type of restraint but then he would just cut up their clothing with a pair of scissors and rumor has it that the pair of scissors belonged to his mother with serial killers we tend to see that there's a pattern of escalating deviant behavior here and Ryder kibby would get caught doing things like stealing clothes from people's clothes lines and cutting them to pieces and i used to um, talk a lot about the channel Bulldog mindset in um, a long time ago on Black Box Online Radio, maybe 2019. I would reference that channel a lot. But the host of that one, John Sanmez, would have something to say about a guy like Roger Kibbe, because he said this about a different murderer. That actions like that are a sign of weakness, and that's just what it is weakness. He's using a pair of scissors to cut up their clothes when the person can't fight back. The person who's doing that might think that they are being strong. They might think that they are doing something powerful, but in all reality, it's a gesture of weakness, attacking an inanimate object, unleashing emotions on something, a piece of clothing that can't fight back. So you can definitely see that in the activities of Roger uh, Kibbe. But in addition to staging this whole fake job interview for Llewellyn Burley, luring her to the van twice, he also did something that is... Very bizarre, and a different crime that occurred in 1986, and that was the murder of Charmaine Sabra. In this instance, um, I mean, like you really have to just read this thing here. This is once again from the Murder Squad. 26-year-old Charmaine Sabra had been shopping earlier in the day when her mom on with her mom on August 8th, 1986, and um, I think not only were they shopping, but I also read on um, Robert Keller's site that they went to a dinner party. On the way home, the car broke down on I-5 near Peltier Road. A man pulled up in a Datsun 280Z, once again I'm getting all my wires crossed, 280Z, and offered to help the women. He drove Charmaine's mother to use a payphone to call for help, and she could reach no one, so he returned Charmaine's mother to the broken down car and her daughter, The man offered to drive them individually home due to the size of the car, meaning it was only a two-seater. And I I really have to wonder, was he driving that two-seater sports car just for such an occasion to get one victim alone? And, like, that's one of the reasons why he purchased it? Or maybe he just liked that type of car, that type of sports car? The man offered to drive them individually due to the size of the car. Charmaiden's mother insisted she go first because of her small child waiting at home. The last time her mother saw Charmaine alive was when she got into the sports car. I read in another source that um, it was actually Charmaine who was driven to the payphone first. But no matter what, no matter what, he sees this broken-down car on the side of the road. He offers a ride to one of the women, and it's genuine. He drives her to the payphone then drives her back to the broken-down car. Hey, we can't get in touch with anyone. It's the early a.m. hours. Like, he's presenting himself as a good Samaritan, and he's actually going through with it much longer than other people do. Like, a lot of people get into somebody's car, and then they abduct them, and then they just murder them at a date later on, as disgusting and horrific as that sounds. But he's just putting them more and more into a comfort zone. And here's another classic hallmark of serial killers they often put people in such a state of comfort they think this person is so harmless that they won't try anything at all they do not give off these types of types of creepy vibes and i think it's just sad it, it stems from it stems from growing up with abusive parents who would do bad things to the children if they would express themselves in any way so they learn to conceal their feelings. Partnered with being alienated from their peers for whatever reason, they once again harbor lots of destructive tendencies and then they just have to sit there and they have to hide them because if they release their destructive feelings and they unleash these destructive behaviors into the social group, then there will be drastic consequences. So by holding back all of these impulses and all of these animosities for opportune moments, well, that's the making of a serial killer. But most people don't go along with it that much. Like, I was just talking about the serial killer John Arthur Aykroyd in a recent episode. He's the subject of the documentary Ghosts of Highway 20. And even though he was a very intimidating figure when you look at him in photos, I mean, people said that about him as well. Like, when he, was, he abducted a woman, she's like, he didn't give off a single bad vibe. Serial killers learned how to do this. They put people in this false sense of security. I well, guess Charmaine Sabra was abducted, and then she was murdered as well. Roger Kibby um had an age range of seventeen to twenty six like late teens to mid twenties for his victims and I believe that he is uh, someone who um is rather consistent with that, and a lot of people were talking about this like online they're saying, why didn't this serial killer mystery become more famous? In the 1980s, it definitely was a big deal. They even assembled an I-5 Strangler Task Force because they noticed the concentration of activity in 1986 that these women are being abducted, and it seems to be centered around Interstate 5, and not only would um, Kibbe abduct the women, sexually assault them, strangle them, he would then dispose of their bodies in various places. That's also very normal for serial killers to... Uh, perform and trying to hide their bodies. And I said I would go back to something about the murder of Llewellyn Burley, which occurred in 1977. Her body was hidden near Lake Berryessa in California, nonetheless. But after all those years, Kibbe was um, unable to locate it once the authorities had pinned the murder on him. And I believe they first attributed the murder of Llewellyn Burley to him, I want to say 2003, that's the date that stands out in my memory. But Please don't quote me on that. But I can tell you, twice, they tried to locate Llewellyn Burley with the the assistance of Roger Kibbe, and he simply couldn't remember where he had discarded her remains. And a detective who was investigating the case uh, just took it upon himself to try and find her. Like He turned Llewellyn Burley's disappearance into a passion project, and he found one bone from her in Napa County, and it turned out through DNA testing that the hu- it was a human bone that did indeed belong to Llewellyn Burley. But I think it was a leg bone. But that's all they were able to recover from her. But yes, indeed, Roger Kibby was attributed to her murder. I mean, twice he tried to locate her body, even using um like a helicopter, doing an aerial um surveillance of the land. But that was unsuccessful. And I would just like to go over to... Robert Keller's website, one more time, RobertKellerAuthor.com, and he says he's giving away free true crime books. I'll share that once again. Does he provide somewhat of a different account about the murder of Charmaine Sabra from 1986? A month after the murder of Stephanie Brown, 26 year old Charmaine Sabra and her mother, Carmen, were driving home from a family dinner when their Pontiac Grand Prix quit on them, and they could not have chosen a worse place to break down. The junction of Peltier Road and I 5 is desolate and it is a stretch of highway that no one wants to be at on the best of times, especially not at 3.30 in the morning. It was deserted. All Charmaine could do was turn on her hazard lights and hope that some passing Samaritan would stop and offer assistance. And you have to think that if cell phones had existed at the time, or at least if people other than Zach Morris had cell phones, then they would have been able to just call someone so much more easily As it turned out, Luck appeared to be with them. After just a few minutes, a man stopped behind them in a white sports car. He seemed friendly enough, so when he offered to drive them to the nearest gas station and call a friend, they accepted. His car, car, however, was only a two-seater, and he said he could only take one of them. And Carmen agreed to accompany him, leaving her daughter behind at the disabled vehicle. And that's when he drove one of them to the payphone. They attempted to call someone unsuccessful, so then he drove back. And then he ended up taking Charmaine Sabra to a different location where she was murdered. Now, there is another element to the story about how Roger Kibby was getting away with this. And I think that it's somewhat it's somewhat different compared to many other serial killers. And that is that Roger Kippy's brother was a homicide detective. And very famously with the Golden State Killer case... Joseph D'Angelo, he was part of an anti-burglary task force and he became the Vassalia Ransacker. He became the East Area Rapist. He became the Golden State Killer because he's using the knowledge from the anti-burglary task force and implementing it into his crimes. With Roger Kibby, it was quite different. He would just ask his brother very awkward questions about his job. And I say awkward only in retrospect. His brother completely did not suspect that he was a serial killer. And because his brother's just answering the questions honestly, and then Roger Kibby is using this knowledge to commit these crimes. I I mean, I'll, I'll just get to one point. The authorities believe that Roger Kibby committed at least 38 murders, and they may have a point. I mean, 1977 to 1987, there's a 10-year Reign of terror, 10 years of operation and activity, and he didn't murder anyone from 1977 to 1986, I just simply don't believe that. If this were some type of calculated criminal masterpiece like the Zodiac Killer Crimes, when someone is just committing crimes on certain days because it has significance to them, maybe somebody could do something like that. But these are sexually motivated crimes. Not only is he abducting people, he is sexually assaulting them. So that really leads me to believe that even though he confessed to these seven murders, and, I mean, it really is bizarre. He's in jail already, serving life in prison, albeit with the possibility of parole, and then, through the improvements of forensic science, they were able to connect him to these six other murders. Um, I think you can—I don't think it's that surprising, though, because there are advancements in science all the time, now I would like to go over to a different article from a website called Dreamin' Demon that I had never read before, DreaminDemon.com, and it has an article called Roger Rees Kibbe is the I-5 Strangler. This is from 2008, Stockton, California. Sometimes Lady Justice takes her time, but when she finally arrives, it's always an entrance worth writing about. On Friday, as I said, 2008, a grand jury indicted Roger Reese Kibbe for the murders of Llewellyn Burley, Laura Hedick, Barbara Ann Scott, Stephanie Brown, Charmaine Sabra, and Katherine Kelly Quinones. Burley was killed in 1977, and the other women were all dumped near Interstate 5 in California in 1986. Kibby was already serving a prison term for the 1987 murder of Darcy Frackenpole, a 17-year-old runaway from Seattle. And an interjection about that, as the police began to zero in on the I-5 strangler, using that I-5 strangler task force that I mentioned, Kibby's brother, the homicide detective, learned about their leads before he did, before Kibby did, before Roger Kibby did. I should say they both had the same last name, and. He absolutely shot down the idea. He's like, no way, you guys got the wrong guy. It's impossible. He did not suspect his brother of being a serial killer, or if he did, he concealed it from the I-5 Strangler Task Force that was trying to find this guy who's dumping the bodies on off of I-5, but then, as they zeroed in on Roger Kibby. His brother just told him, like, you have to turn yourself in and confess. I mean, they've caught you already for the murder of Darcy Frackenpole, as I said, because certain forensic material was left behind. Roger Kibby had long been suspected of the other murders, but due to California law about jurisdiction, it was impossible to try Kibby for all the murders in all the counties. After the laws were changed, the cases were reopened, and a grand jury spent February hearing evidence in the serial murders. The San Joaquin County District Attorney's Office is prosecuting all of the murders as one case, but it is working with district attorneys in other counties where the victims were killed. Kibbe liked to abduct girls and young women, rape them and assault them, and do bad things to them. Then he would strangle them with their own clothes. And also, um, as I said, sometimes he would use the uh, paracord, like the uh, parachute nylon cord. He'd leave most of the bodies thrown out like the trash along I-5, hence the catchy nickname. His victims are named in the indictment. Llewellyn Burley was killed around September 15th of 1977. Laura Hedick was killed on or around April 21st of 1986. There it is again, that enormous time gap. It never, it never will sit right with me. I mean, it really seems like he was operating during that 10-year span, and just they could not uh, connect him to it. Next murdered was Barbara Ann Scott on July 3rd of 1986. Stephanie Brown was murdered on or about July 15th of 1986. Charmaine Sabra died at Kibby's hands around August 17th of 86, And Catherine Kelly Canyones was killed around November 5th of 86. And as I said, of course, Darcy Frackenpole was killed in 1987. The murder that got Kibby put away was the murder of Darcy Frackenpole, he was convicted in March of 1991. Thing is, it was well known that Kibby was probably the guy behind these murders. He didn't keep his mouth shut very well, and there were books written in the 1990s naming him as the prime suspect, but the law can be a complacent thing and have a short memory. With Kibby behind bars for Darcy Frackenpole's murder, nobody outside the victim's families were too worried about him, until they realized that Kibby could very soon be up for parole as I said that a uh, 16 year um, sentence I believe it was 16 years after serving 16 years and he was eligible for parole and um, the long story short about the life of Roger Kippy is that he was convicted and even on murderpedia they'll just lay it out like this the so-called i5 strangler was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences after pleading guilty to six Northern California killings in an effort to avoid the death penalty. So he did go on confessing to these crimes, however, he did not confess to any of the, I guess you would call, unconfirmed crimes of the I-5 Strangler. And this story took an even, well, I mean, just a di- different turn in a different way. Roger Kibby was murdered in prison by his own cellmate, on February 28th of 2021, Jason Budreau ended Roger Kippy's life by strangling him nonetheless. Manual strangulation. And yes, Jason Boudreau knew exactly who he was. To talk about this, I'll go over to an article from the Associated Press. The man accused of strangling the California serial killer known as the I-5 Strangler won't face the death penalty, a prosecutor said. Amador County District Attorney Todd Reeby said he had filed first degree murder charges against Jason Budrow and will seek a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Budrow, age 40 at the time, was accused of strangling Roger Reese Kibbe, whose body was discovered on February 28th, of 2021, in their shared cell at Mule Creek Prison, southeast of Sacramento. Budrow was already serving life without parole for strangling his then-girlfriend in 2011 in Riverside County. I think you can get the idea. He knew that um, Roger Kibbe was a sex offender, he knew he was a serial killer, and he uh, strangled him to death. And, I mean, Jason Boudreau talked about this very clearly. I forget the exact source where he said this, but he felt that he was doing a service. Death penalty cases are costly and lengthy affairs, and they include automatic appeals. California hasn't executed anyone since 2006, and they have issued a moratorium on capital punishment as long as Gavin Newsom is in office. Kibbe, age 81, was initially convicted of the 1991 strangling of Darcy Frank Frackenpole, a 17-year-old who had run away from Seattle. Her nude body was found west of South Lake Tahoe below Echo Summit in 1987. Investigators said that they began suspecting him of other slayings, but it wasn't until 2009 that a San Joaquin County District Attorney office of an investigator used new developments in DNA evidence to connect him to additional slayings in Northern California. Roger Kibby entered a, a guilty plea to six additional killings in exchange for prosecutors not seeking the death penalty. The victims were and Burley in 1977, Stephanie Brown, Laura Hedrick, Catherine Kelly Quinonez, Charmaine Sabra, and Barbara Ann Scott all in 1986, and of course Darcy Frackenpole was in 1987. Kibbe was serving multiple life terms without the possibility of parole when he got killed. In a letter to the Mercury News last month, Jason Boudreaux said he killed Kibbe on the same day they became cellmates initially so he would have the cell to himself. What started out as my original bare-bones plan of doing a straightforward homicide of a cellmate to obtain my single cell status evolved into a mission for avenging that youngest girl, and all of Kibby's other victims, he wrote. Well, um, Jason Budrow definitely seems like a horrible, despicable person in his own right, but Roger Kibby was not any better, I'll just leave it at that. You know, there is something, though, about the life and death of Roger Kibby, the I-5 Strangler. Yes, he had a lousy childhood, but he grew up, he didn't have to marry a woman who was abusive like his mother. I mean, so says some places on the internet. I never met this woman. But he also became an accomplished, like, furniture salesman. I, read, I even read in one source that he was a partner in the furniture company. He was even good at building and designing furniture. He was passionate about skydiving. Why did he have to turn to murders? And that's just what it is. It's just this type of deviant behavior, this desire to destroy other people because they felt rejected when they were younger. That's what um, is so saddening and pathetic about somebody like Roger Kibbe. Now, I often talk about this in relation to serial killers, and some of you have heard this before, but it's like picking up a glass bottle, smashing it on the ground into a thousand pieces, and if you put half of the pieces back together – Then it's still a broken bottle. It's not completely restored. That's the way I view a lot of um, children who are abused, emotionally neglected, rejected by their peers, rejected by society. Even if they get their life in order in some ways, they're still broken people. And I think Roger Kippy is a textbook example of that because he got married. He has a career. He has... Things that he's passionate about. I mean, he's having all these wonderful conversations with his brother. Yet it's just not enough to keep him away from these destructive tendencies. His deviant behavior would escalate and escalate and escalate. And using his mother's own scissors to cut up the victim's clothing in that act of weakness. It just goes to show you that th- those traumatic experiences that one, or that someone like Roger Kibby has in childhood, do not leave. What would you say about uh, the serial killer Roger Kibbe, the I-5 Strangler? If there's anything you would like to share, you can put your ideas in the comment section down below. I would love to read your messages. Anybody can write the show at BlackBoxOnlineRadio at AOL.com. That's also in the description box. But most importantly, I would just like to know, what do you think about this story? Do you think that Roger Kibbe is a typical serial killer, an abductor, sexually assaulting the victims? That he is just someone who is a deviant... Someone who was rejected from society and then tried to destroy what he could not have belonging to other people. So he was just so far gone that he couldn't be saved. Or do you believe that Roger Kibbe is somewhat different than other serial killers? What do you have to say? I would love to read your messages in the comments section down below. You can write me at blackboxonlineradio at aol.com. My personal Facebook is also in the description box. There's also a Facebook page, Black Box Online Radio. Or, of course, blackboxnid88 on Instagram. And I'll see you over there for the bonus podcast. Until next time.